Welcome to Chase Family Church Podcast. Today we have Phil Kingham speaking from the book of Revelation. Today's talk is entitled Lean on Me. So here we have Phil Kingham with Lean on Me. Morning. Okay, so before we get into scripture today, uh, I wonder if you can help me with something, uh, or at least bear with me with something. I had a, I was digging in my clothes drawer the other day. Uh, for a t-shirt and I found one I thought that looks nice I was looking for a black t-shirt and uh, I got it out and, and when I got it out I realized it wasn't mine has that ever happened to you if you have children sometimes it happens okay um and uh, and I just thought well I quite like this so I thought I'd put it on anyway and um and it Hannah said to me well this is Ben's so we texted Ben uh, a, a picture of me with it on and he um I got a response from Bethany that's mine and um <laughs> And so Ben said, no, it's not, it's mine. And Bethany said, you gave it to me. And so this kind of WhatsApp text thing started happening. And I said, well, you know, it was in my drawer, so technically it's mine. And Ben said, well, if you wear it to preach on Sunday morning, you can keep it. So what do you think? Okay, right. There you go. So this morning, I am the cookie monster. Photographic evidence, okay. Is this being broadcast? Right, so Bethany and Ben, this is mine. (laughs) Okay, if you've got your Bible, we're in the book of Revelation this morning. And we're looking at Revelation verse 14, reading 1 to 13. As we read this, I guess some of you are going to think, oh my word. Chapter 14, 1 to 13. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound like from heaven, like the roar of rushing waters, and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne, and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, but kept themselves pure. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among men and offered as first fruits to God and to the lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea and the springs of water. And a second angel followed and said, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, is anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand? He too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast and his image, or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. 
Then I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the, are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, from their deeds, for their deeds will follow them. You're worried now, aren't you? Let me tell you a little story. Some years ago, a good many years ago, someone from this church invited me to their college, Woodhouse College, to speak. And they said, can you speak on the book of Revelation? The Christian Union had grown. It was started with a small group of people and grown to about 70. They were causing all sorts of problems. And uh, they were the reason I actually got kicked out of working in there as well. But that's another thing altogether. They said, please, could you come and do a study on the book of Revelation? So I said, yeah, sure. Okay, always up for a challenge, um, swallowed hard and, and agreed. And um, when I got there, they said, look, we've had posters put everywhere. And I said, really? They said, yeah, the place is going to be packed today. We've posted everywhere. I said, look at these posters. And it said, come and tell, hear Phil Kingham tell us what's going to happen at the end of the world. <laughs> I said, well, there may be a lot of people today, but they're going to be a bit disappointed. So today, I want to talk to you a little bit about the book of Revelation, okay? And I'm gonna zoom in on one specific verse in this passage, but I wanna to talk to you about the nature, before I go anywhere, of apocalyptic literature, okay? So in the Bible, there are, and this is my way of looking at it, okay, this is not um, theologically precise, it's just my way of looking at it. In the Bible, there are four different types of literature. There are historical, okay, and just for the purpose, okay, imagine I'm standing here looking back into history. That is historical lit literature. It's all about viewpoints. So the person writes looking backwards, okay, or about present, writing history as it happens. And then there's prophetic, where the person stands and looks forward. Usually not a great distance, but a certain distance forwards, okay. And then there are the books that are about looking upwards. So they're the praise and worship and what we would call the wisdom books. So the Psalms um, and lots of the, the stuff are looking upwards into heaven, usually with arms raised. God is amazing. Okay, are you with me so far? Yeah. And then there's what we would call, now not a great deal of them, okay, but books like Zechariah and Daniel and Revelation are what are tend to be called apoc um, apocalyptic literature. And that is a different way of looking at it. It's not just about looking forward. It's a vagin for the moment because it, and it's a giveaway here. It says, I was in the law, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. So John tells us where he's writing from. He's writing, he's been transported to heaven and he's looking down on the world. He's looking down on human history and human future and human present all at the same time. So imagine, from, who here has ever climbed a really tall mountain? Yeah? And when you look and you describe the view, you don't just describe that side or that side. Very often you describe the whole lot all at once. And the apocalyptic literature, to my mind, is no different. God is in heaven. He sees the whole of time laid out before him. And when John writes the book of Revelation and when Zechariah, and particularly if you read the Old Testament uh, prophet Zechariah, he talks about what is going to come now, what is going to come then, what has just happened. And he does it all in the same scripture. So it all gets muddled up, just like you taking a view across the whole uh, of a landscape from a high vantage point. And the, you see this given away at the beginning of the book of Revelation. It says, I am he who 
is and was and is to come. All at the same time, I am he who is. And very often people misquote this in the book of Revelation. They say, I am he who was and is and is to come. But it's not linear. Jesus is saying, I am he who is, who was and is to come. So you get the name Yahweh mixed up in the whole thing. And that's what God says to Moses, I am. I have always been and I always will be. And there's a sense of God's eternal when he speaks. And so John, when he's writing the book of Revelation, looks from an eternal perspective. And you'll discover in the book of Revelation, history, present and future, often muddled up. Is that clear? Are you with me? Say yes, Phil. Okay, good. Excellent. So... This is the nature of the prophetic, okay? Sometimes it's not clear until you see it happen. And very often, I don't know about you, but in my life, I don't know that God has fulfilled prophecy in my life until I see it happen. I remember once I was in a meeting, uh, I was working for Crusaders, staff worker, and I was asked to take over a certain region of, uh, of, of Southeast England. And, um, and they said, Please, could you come to a meeting and discuss this? And I sat there in the meeting and God showed me something. Nothing to do, I'm not going to tell you the details, but he showed me that he was going to lift me and put me by a river and plant me there. And I thought, okay, that's a bit weird. I was living in Hampstead at this point. And, uh, and I thought, well, I could, the, the vision that I had was the book was, looked like the River Thames. So I thought, well, maybe God's going to move me somewhere to, you know, I don't know, Henley. That'd be nice, wouldn't it? Um, somewhere, you know, on the Thames. And it wasn't until actually I stood, and it, it kind of didn't dawn on me until I'd been there a week. But in our home in Palmer's Green, we stood on a bank. I st- our house is right on the banks of the New River. And the whole of the point, the prophecy that God gave me, said, I want you to, I'm going to put you by a river that carries fresh water into London. Do you know what the river, new river was made for? Okay. And when I got there, I thought, oh, do you know what the point of that prophecy was? It wasn't so that I worked it out, because that's sometimes what we have the habit of trying to do, is it work out God's prophecies for him. It was so that when I got there, I could say, oh, of course, you've had this covered all the way. And that is the point of revelation. It's not for us to analyze the future and to try and work it out. It's actually so that when we're there, we can say, it's okay, God is here with us. And that's why the book of Revelation has been massively influential all the way through the history of the church, um, particularly in communist Russia, in China, in Cambodia, the places where the whole state turned against the people and, and Christians became hugely persecuted. Um, The Antichrist had many different iterations. I'm not saying, and I believe there will be a final iteration of the Antichrist, okay? But it is whoever takes it. John says this, the spirit of the Antichrist is alive and at work in the world now, okay? And so when when I had the privilege of working with people in Moscow and, and spending time with people who had endured intense suffering under communist persecution, I spoke to a pastor and in his village, they had crucified a 14-year-old lad who had given his life to Christ in the Ukraine, okay? And, um, and, and he just said the book of Revelation became a lifeline to us. Not because it told us what was going to happen, but because it told us that God is going to win. And we know that we're on the winning team, okay? And it brought great comfort to them. So, 
If you're thinking today Phil is going to analyze what's going to happen in the future, it's not going to happen. Okay? Sorry to disappoint you if that's what you think. But um, I want to, to, to um, hone in on something that I think is really important for us as a church. Now, some years after this, some years before this, sorry, um, I was in um, Poland on a three-week mission working with teenagers. And I heard this American preacher, I wasn't doing the talking, I was just doing kind of one-to-one -one evangelism with people. And there was a, they had a main preacher every night. There was about 500 kids on this youth camp. And, um, and this guy was speaking. And he was one of those people, um, well, you might have liked him, but he really annoyed me. Okay, I really didn't enjoy his outlook. He was, uh, maybe it was a cultural thing. Uh, and I'm telling you this, not because he was, um, he was bad, but because... Actually, I was arrogant, and I watched him, and, and he said something about three days in that really got my goat, okay, really got my back up. He said, um, he was talking about Jesus, and he said, I'm going to tell you when Jesus is coming back. Now, would that ring alarm bells for you? Yes. Yeah? It, well, it rang alarm bells for me. I was part of a team, and we began to discuss it secretly and say, well, what a heretic. You know, surely he shouldn't be speaking. Surely those who organized this must have got rid of him by now. And, um, and, and even one of the team went and complained to the guy who was leading the camp. And uh, he just said, just get over yourselves, okay? And uh, that didn't do us any good either. So this kind of little bit of kind of bubbling went on in our hearts. And we got on with the job, tried to do the job. And we tried to think not about the evening meetings when this guy was going to be speaking and annoy us. And I have to say um, that this guy was a fantastic speaker. He wasn't, didn't annoy me because he wasn't good. He annoyed me, actually, because he was much better than I was. Okay? And I have learned a whole lot. In fact, a lot of the way of teaching with young people, I picked up from him. So I'm grateful for him. But he did this whole thing. And, it, and do you know what happened? Is I got ill on the night when he was <laughs> going to tell us when Jesus came back. And I didn't go. But I heard what he said. <coughs> He said, I can tell you when Jesus is coming back. He's coming back tonight, for those of you that will receive him. And that was all it was, was this big play on Jesus is coming. He comes now if you want him to. And that is the fact of scripture, is that Jesus comes twice. He will come once in judgment, once in mercy. And this guy was simply to a bunch of non-Christians who are packed um, audience of teenagers who weren't Christians, he was saying, tonight Jesus can come, and he will come. And that's what we expect, isn't it? When people give their lives to Jesus, we expect that there's a transaction. They surrender their lives to God, and God himself comes and inhabits their lives through the Holy Spirit. And uh, so he was absolutely right, and I was an idiot. A proud, arrogant, stuck-up young idiot. And God taught me a lot through that. So Jesus has already returned for those who want to know him. He will come one day in glory, but then he will come to judge. And the big question for us all, and whoever hears this kind of message, whether it's online or here, is has he returned for you now? Do you know him? Has the power of God invaded your life? Has Christ come to you? Because it says in the book of Revelation, those for whom, those who have experienced the revelation of Jesus, they will never fear the second death. So there is nothing we have to fear from the book of Revelation in terms of the judgment if Jesus has already come in grace and mercy. Are you with me?
Mm. Okay. So, I need a, a volunteer. Who shall I borrow? <coughs> Never sit on the front row. Come on, sir. <laughs> There you go. Now, Nick, there's only one problem with what you're doing, is you've sat down, and what I want you to do is to stand on the chair. Okay, can you do that for me? <laughs> I don't think, no, just one, just one, okay. Are you all right? I think it's, I think it's okay. If I can stand on it, I think you'll be all right. Yeah, I've got a broken hip, though. You've got a broken hip? Yeah. Should I pick someone else? No, but yeah. afterwards you can pray for my hip as well. Yeah. <laughs> Two for one. So. Here's the problem, is that we're living in a world at the moment that's shaking, yeah? It's shaken over the last two years, it's shaken in ways that uh, we can't... You've been a bit nervous now, okay. So, the things that people found their lives on... <laughs> okay, are shaking. And God has come and brought a kingdom into the world that is unshakable. So, Nick, can you put one foot there? Just one. Okay. Now, here's the issue that we have as believers, is that especially in the West and in places where the church is not largely persecuted, where we live at peace, is we put our trust in Jesus, but actually we don't need to put our trust in him for everything. Okay, so this, and this is pretty solid. But God, periodically through history, through the book of Revelation, and even now, is allowing what can be shaken to be shaken. Now, if Nick has any common sense at this point, I'll just stand with Jesus. <laughs> that's the safest thing, okay? And so there's a reason that God allows persecution and God allows suffering and God allows struggling to come on society. He shakes what can be shaken in order that his people might transfer the weight of their lives into what really matters. And you have a choice at that point. You either stay with what's shaky or some people completely abandon the church and cling for dear life onto this and sit down and say, I'm sitting here until it gets past. And the problem is, is that for many cultures, it never did get past. Okay. So what I want to talk about this morning, just in the last few minutes, Nick, give him a round of applause. I'm going to sit down safely. So I don't have to pray for his hip. Well, we can. But, um, but God allows what is shaken, what is shakeable, to be shaken. And I want us to look really at this, um, just this one verse here. Because here, the writer of Revelation, John the Apostle, we think, okay, is writing from his cave in the island of Patmos and he is in the spirit on the Lord's day and he sees a world system, actually sees a whole load of world system and he sees the shaking of civilization. He sees the trembling and the fact that all, all the way through history, things that can be shaken are going to be shaken. And he says, this calls for something. Let me read what he says it calls for. This calls for, verse 12, this calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. 
So I want to look just at these three things, okay? Patient endurance, obedience to God's commandments, and faith in Jesus. Really simple. I'm going to teach you to suck eggs this morning. So I want to look at this word, hupamune, okay, or hupamone. Um, I'm sorry, um, Leah, I've just messed up your language again. I don't know how you pronounce it. Okay, but this is the Greek, okay, and it means the Thayer definition of it is steadfastness, constancy, endurance. The characteristic of a man or woman who is not swerved from his or her deliberate purpose or loyalty to the faith and piety, even by the greatest trials and suffering. Now, there's another word with a hooper at the beginning of it. Do you know what it is? Okay. Hoopostasis, which is uh, the word that we get in, you get Hebrews 12, for faith is the substance, the hoopostasis of things hoped for. And I think I talked here once about this word, hoopostasis. It's, it actually means to stand underneath something. Okay. To take your stand underneath something. So imagine for a moment uh, um, that you are trekking through the Thai jungle. You've come to a place, right? And you're hot and sweaty. You've been trekking all day. Okay. And you come to this place and there's a, this beautiful pool of crystal clear water with a, th a waterfall thundering down. And you, you're hot and sweaty. What are you going to do? You're going to just dive straight in there. And if you're a complete idiot, like I probably would be, or I like to think of myself, I would go and stand under that waterfall and go, ah, faith is the substantiating, the standing under things hoped for. Now, hupamune is different, okay? If faith or substance, if faith is substance, the standing underneath something, hupamune is to build a home in that place. So for, imagine for a moment, this is, you know, David says, you prepare a place, uh, uh, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Faith is saying, I'm going to stand here, whereas this word, patient endurance, says, I'm going to build here. I don't know if you've ever read the story of Jeremiah when, uh, um, you know, he's prophesied and said, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you. All of his people, all of the Israelites are being taken off into exile. And he says, 70 years, you're all going to come back. And then God says to him, OK, buy a plot of land. Hang on, this land is just being ravaged by the enemy. Buy a plot of land. That is hupamone, OK? It is to take a place even in spite of everything going on and saying, I am not moving. This calls for. And when the world shakes, what it calls for is a church full of people who say, we're going nowhere. Whatever it takes, we're building. We're building to last. No matter what shakes, we're going to build. Are you with me? So when Christians take this stance a candle is lit in the darkness and that darkness and that candle lit in the darkness will not be ext extinguished it is taking a stance taking an obedient stance and if anything is needed in this world it is people to look at you and see you standing firm you know, we think sometimes that people are going to be one to Christ because we shout louder, because we sing better songs, because we have better equipment. People are one to Christ because they see someone doing something they cannot do. 
You ever seen that Foster's advert? Sorry, I shouldn't be watching films about uh, adverts about beer, but there was a Foster's advert where people were walking around, I have no idea why it links to Foster's. People were walking around about 45 degrees like that, just walking around at 45 degrees, like leaning. That's what it should look like to the world for us. That's what we should look like, leaning. And people look at you and say, well, where are the strings? You know, waving their arms. Who's supporting you? Patient endurance, hanging on to the end. You've probably all heard the, the um, famous talk, I have no idea if it's apocryphal or not, by Churchill where he stood in a stool or was supposed to um, invite to speak at a school and he just stood there and he got up and he said, um, never, I can't really do his accent, never, <coughs> never, never. I don't know how many nevers he said, but basically his line was, never give up. And then he sat down. <clears throat> Patient endurance. You see, there is something that the world needs to see right now. And that is a church that knows how to lean on Jesus. And Christians who know how to lean on Jesus. Next bit. Obedience to God's command. I grew up in Luton, which we affectionately know, uh, called the armpit of England. Okay, I can say that because I come from there. They tell me it's an up-and-coming place now, but uh, you know, I used to live there. I can't imagine it. Um, but I lived on a, a council estate. Uh, we had a little council house, uh, four bedrooms. There were two of us in one in the box room, uh, three in another one. And I think my mum and dad had a bedroom to themselves, okay. But my mum and dad were Christians, okay. They were a particular brand of Christians that were very legalistic, and uh, there are things that I was glad to be released from when I, I didn't become a Christian in that environment. But I want to tell you a little bit about what it was like growing up. You see, my mum and dad said God was the most important thing, and they didn't tell me that, I just knew it from the way they lived. They didn't tell me a great deal at all, actually. I could see in the way they lived that nothing mattered like being at church on a Sunday. Nothing mattered like being faithful. Nothing mattered. If Christmas Day fell on a Sunday, Christmas Day was abandoned and shipped to the day afterwards because God, for them, was more important than us celebrating. Um, now, that was uncomfortable for me to grow up around. I used to have to wear a suit to church every Sunday. I would never have got away with anything like this, okay? A suit every day. And my friends used to take the mick out of me mercilessly. And uh, I was known in school as the Bible basher, which was unfortunate because I didn't know Jesus and I didn't bash the Bible, but they knew what my family were like. And on a fairly regular basis, from my memory, our house used to get stoned. They used to throw rocks at our front door and yell Bible bashers at the top of their voice. And I remember my mum was no lady to be trifled with. She's a little lady. She's still alive, okay? Um, but I remember her going out after one of these boys, and she found him behind a hedge. He was 17 years old, and he was weeping when he bought her, she brought him back. She had him by the ear, and she carried him back to the house, and she said, I'm going to, where do you live? I'm going to find your mother. Okay, but that was the memory of my childhood. We were not a popular family. But I remember just across the road, I did have a friend, a guy called Anthony Jenkins, and his uh, mum and dad 
uh, they worked, they were local politicians and uh, they were atheists and they gave us not a serious amount of grief, but a little. But I remember what happened when Sally, Anthony's brother, swallowed something and it went down the wrong way and she was choking to death. Who do you think they went to? Straight across the road to my house. And my dad, because he was qualified in first aid, saved her life. Whenever something happened in our neighborhood, where did people go? They came to our house. People knocked on our door for everything. They would slander us one moment and turn up for help the next. Because they knew who we were and they knew what we stood for. I'm not claiming any of this. This was all my parents. They set up home on a rough council estate and they lived for Jesus. And they were unpopular, but everyone knew where they could find help. They were obedient to the commands of Jesus. And there's a call on our lives, folks, whether it looks shiny or whether the Holy Spirit comes and we have a lovely time of worship. There is a call on our lives day by day to live the way that God called us to live. It's tempting to change your morality to fit in with the world around you. A guy came to Jesus, you know the story, and says, what must I do to, exp to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, what was his first answer? His first commandment. You know the commandments. You know the commandments. And then I, you, can, you can analyze this if you like in your discussions afterwards. Why did Jesus only quote the first five, six commandments rather than all of them? Okay, he missed out a number of them and he said, let me read it to you. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Now, this is not how we get saved. And Jesus goes on to explain that. But actually, there is a standard that Christians are meant to live by. If we lie, and if we cheat, and if we steal, and we dishonor our parents, the world will know. We might get away with it, but the world will know. I remember meeting a lady on a train. Um, I was going away on retreat somewhere and I found out she was a Christian. We had a lovely time chatting. And she was telling me the story about um, she, she was a high-flying, um, she worked for a massive insurance company in the city. And uh, she was the PA to the main boss. And I said, how did you get the job? She said, well, I, I applied and he gave me the job and he put me on trial. He said, I'll let you know within a week. He said, not many people last. And uh, it's the first day at a job. Uh, her boss, she, she answered the phone and she said to her boss, it's for you. And he said, tell them I'm not here. And she said, I can't do that. You are here. And he said, tell them I'm not here. She said, I can't. And he said, you have a choice now. The job or you tell them I'm not here. So she took it off hold and she said, he'll speak to you now. And handed him the phone. He was furious. But he said to her afterwards, he said, okay, pack your bags. And then he had a double thought and he said, if you can tell me why you did that and where you got the courage to do that, I might reconsider. And she just said this simple one line. She said, the day I can lie to you is the same day. Sorry, the day, the day I lie for you is the same day that I will lie to you. 
He said, good answer, you can sit at your desk. And she was still working for him when I spoke to her. But there needs to be, we need to stand out, folks. As the world shakes, if they can't see that we're not shaking, why would they come to us? Anyone can wear nice clothes or look good for a while. But it's the solidness about our lives that, you know, that's what John says, this calls for. When the world's shaking, our job is not to analyze the darkness, but to be light. So the Ten Commandments are a good idea, a good description of what a good life looks like. They're not it. We don't receive eternal life by living by them. We receive eternal life because Jesus has come to live in our hearts and is now living out the fulfillment of the law in us and through us. So finally, faith in Jesus. There's another interpretation to this. It depends on how you tackle the Greek. Faith in Jesus or faithfulness towards Jesus. See, it's faith in Jesus that makes us righteous. But I don't know if you're aware of this. It's not a one-time event. So in other words, if you go to an event and you give your life to Jesus, that's not it. That's just the beginning, yeah? Yes, Phil? Yes, Phil. Okay. It's not it. In the same way that being married isn't complete after your wedding day. If it was, life would be a lot easier. Okay. Well, it might not be for some of us, okay? That life is meant to get fuller and better after that. That's why when people say to me, you know, the wed my wedding day was the best day of my life, I think, well, that's pretty sad. You know, what does it say about the rest of your marriage? Marriage goes on and on and on, and I don't mean to be on and on and on and on. You know, it goes on. And it's a continual commitment. And our relationship to Christ, our faith in him, as Nick actually put his faith in the chair, needs to happen every single day, day after day after day after day. Um, I confess quite freely, I struggle with that. I remember how God... Just very gently, as he, when he challenges us, he's so gracious about it. But I was away on retreat. Forgive me if you've heard me tell this story once. But I was uh, on a retreat, and we were in Oklahoma, and we were going to do this fasting day. And uh, they, sent us, they sent us out. It was a kind of organized thing. Sent us out into the, onto the ranch and just said, okay, go for the day. Here's some things you need to pray through. Uh, you're not eating. Uh, we'll give you something to drink. You know, We took water and everything. Took a deck chair with us. Uh, we didn't want to suffer too much as we were praying. And, um, and uh, go and ask God what to do and get on with it and come back at six o'clock. I was hoping that they would break fast at six o'clock. It didn't happen, but anyway. Um, <laughs> so I, I stood outside the building and they sent us off in ones. And the other thing is we had to be silent. <laughs> uh, that would be tough for some of us, wouldn't it? Um, and I, I said to the Lord, where do you want me to go? And just straight away, he said, you see that tree there on the horizon? Go and sit under it and do your morning devotion. I thought, well, that looks nice. It was a nice sunny morning. I like the idea of sitting under a tree on a ranch, relaxing and doing devotions. I had my Bible with me, so off I set. It was about a two-mile walk. I got there, and I said to the Lord, there must be some mistake. The tree was in the middle of a swamp, and there were mosquitoes everywhere. And if you know Phil, you'll know that he's allergic to mosquito bites and swells up into a balloon. And uh, they're not a good idea for me. And I stood there and I said, Lord, there must be some mistake. And the Lord said to me, Phil, do you trust me? And that sinking realization came over my heart. And I said to him, no, I don't. 
and he brought back a memory of something that had happened. I'm not going to give you the details, but years and years previously where I had been deeply disappointed. I'd expect God to do something and he hadn't done or he hadn't fixed it the way I thought he should have done. And I said, Lord, I'm sorry. I don't trust you. He said, I know. For years now, you've been holding back on your trust in me. He said, I'm asking you today, Phil, I love you. Will you trust me? And he didn't make the pain go away. And I began to cry as I remembered what had happened. And, um, and I made a decision and I got my deck chair and I waded through the water to the, that dry patch of ground just underneath the tree and through all the crowd clouds of mosquitoes. And I sat there and I got my Bible out and I said, Lord, I trust you. Please look after me. I was there for an hour and a half. The mosquitoes didn't touch me. They seemed to gather in a big cloud all the way around me, but they didn't come anywhere near me. The sun beat down on me because it wasn't even in the shade of the tree. It was on the side where there was no shade. And I didn't burn. I didn't have anything with me to protect myself against the sun. But God took care of me. But it was that simple test, simple test which comes day by day by day by day. Do you trust me? Do you trust me with this situation? Do you trust me with your son? Do you trust me with your daughter? Do you trust me when it hurts? Are you prepared still then to lean on me? You see, faithfulness to my wife is getting up every morning and reminding myself of the marriage vows. Of saying them over in my head. I don't do that every morning. But every now and again, I remind myself of what I said, especially when I'm mad at her. And even more when she's mad at me. It happens occasionally. Remind myself because faith is not a one-off event. It happens every single day, day by day by day by day. Am I going to trust you? And I've just over the last two years, I've had to lean on this. And I had to lean on it just a couple of weeks back as I was thinking through this. I went to visit mum and she's in a home in Harpenden. It's a good Christian home. But she, her advent, dementia is now extremely advanced. She's 94 years old. And she seems physically very strong, but she's hard to recognise as my mum anymore. And she doesn't really recognise me. And many of you know exactly what this feels like. And I go and sit with her and sometimes it's a better week. And sometimes it's a really bad week, but it's really particularly encouraging. But it is my privilege to sit with her, who loved me and brought me up and suffered for me. It's my privilege to sit with her, this woman of faith, and stand with her when she doesn't even make any sense anymore. And I remember just a few weeks back, just driving back, and I, I was, uh, just came out of Hartman Home, and I said, well, Lord, I've done that. What now? And I clicked play on my playlist and uh, came up with an old hymn. A couple of guys uh, done a new version on the, the hymn. I don't know the hymn, actually, or didn't. Then, tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Just to take him at his word. Just to lean upon his promise. Just to know that Christ is Lord. And I drove home with the tears pouring down my face, singing, God is a sweetness in just leaning.
day after day after day. Just leaning into him. This calls for patient endurance. For the saints who obey the commands of God. And are trusting in Jesus. And um, I'm going to wrap up there. But I have a question for you. See, we say very glibly we trust in Jesus, but is there something today you need to put in his hands? If you have children, you probably do that every day. <laughs> if you have parents that are old, you probably do that every day. But are there situations at work or at home where you're actually thinking? And you're like a fidget spinner in your head and the, the enemy comes along and you don't come up with any answers and he just flicks it again. And it carries on spinning. How am I going to sort this one out? How am I going to sort this one out? How am I going to sort this one out? And just when you think it's resting, Satan comes along and says, and off it goes again. And sleep vanishes. And anxiety grips your heart. Today, do you need to put something in his hands? I don't know what it is, but do you know what it is? And if there is something this morning that you need to put in his hands, it could be a marriage. <laughs> Just going to wait on God for a minute. I'm going to ask Pete to come and play guitar. Let's just close our eyes. And if, as I've been talking this morning, you've realized that a good deal of the decisions that you make in life are on your own intelligence, your own wisdom, just bring those to him now. He doesn't condemn you. Scripture is really clear. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him. And he will make your path straight. If you know that this morning that uh, you've been tempted to you put faith in something and it's got really, really tough and you just thought, well, I'm not building here. It's too risky. I want to go somewhere more comfortable. And the Lord says to you, I know it's tough. Would you give me a little while longer? you put anchors and roots down even though it's not the most comfortable place in the world would you trust me Heavenly Father I thank you that you are faithful and the great truth is that you're faithful even when I'm not Lord you know me that I flip-flop from one thing to another. And Lord, I thank you that you who have called me are faithful. And you will be faithful right to the end. 
to the day when you call me home. If you need to lean on the Lord this morning, just invite you to stand and just bring that burden. You don't have to speak it out, but just to stand before him and just say, Lord, this I'm giving to you. I just sensed as we were worshipping this morning that um, uh, one or two people here that uh, you've been trying something and it's you just got to the point and you just think it's not working and I believe the Lord wanted to say to one person in particular maybe more just give me a little bit more time just as it were hold that thing out before the Lord and just say Lord I trust you I choose to trust you my feelings may betray me but I choose this morning to trust you trust you with my family if you're standing around these people just reach out towards them just pray for them as you know if you're honest that you've stood here many times and you will do again for I am the Lord your God I stand at your left and your right I am still the rock under your feet I'm still the crown on your head. I go before you. I'm your rear guard. And as you are mine, so I am yours. And I will never leave you or forsake you. My mother and father may forget you, yet I will not forget you, says the Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus. <clears throat> Just come and minister to your children. And Father, where there is that surrender in our hearts, that giving way, <coughs> we ask that you would come and do what only you can do, which is bring peace in the middle of a war zone. To set up a table before us in the presence of our enemies. Thanks to him who's faithful. But whatever comes, yet we will praise him. Jesus, we worship you. We worship you. We worship you. We worship you. 
We worship you. We're not as strong as we like to think we are. But we choose to trust you. We choose to lean on you today. Courage often forsakes us, Lord, but you will never forsake us, Lord. And where you are, you bring fresh courage. When you presence yourself among us, you give new life, new hope. It is so sweet to trust in Jesus. Jesus, it is sweet to lean on you. Well, we pray that that message will have blessed you and we hope you'll tune in next week. God bless.